more of that. <laughs> so last week, um, we talked about the Romans road of salvation, and I always hesitate to you know, bring up last week's message just in case, you know, there's some people who uh, weren't here, didn't hear that message. But the, the basis of the message was uh, that the gospel um, is pretty simple, pretty clear. We need to receive it in order to be saved, which is that we are sinners, that we were uh, born sinful, that we make sinful choices, that we're lost without God and, and without um, without a Savior, that that sin will keep us separated from God. We are already separated, but to keep us separated from God. But God, in His grace, mercy, and love, gave us a Savior, Jesus, who paid for the cost of sin on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. And that there's something that you and I must do, which is intentionally receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Pretty simple three-step process. I'm a sinner. God um, is willing to save you, but I have to receive that salvation. So what happens when you understand the message, you've heard it, you've responded to it, is that that becomes the foundation, that, that platform, the rock that you begin to build your house on. But there's another layer on top of that. Okay, And so the first step for every human being is to hear and respond to the gospel that I'm a sinner, I have a Savior, I need to receive the Savior. So we call Jesus our Savior, okay? But then we also call him what? Lord. He's our Lord. And so the next level or the next step in that, that process of I'm saved, he has seen me, he has changed me, he's given me the Holy Spirit, he's he has uh, produced righteousness in me. He's, he's somehow transposed, okay, my sin to the cross and his righteousness to me, okay? So, so he's done some miraculous work in me. But then as Lord, there's something else that begins to happen, which is that now as a person who knows and loves Jesus, I want to do what he has called me to do. And it's more than just that he's a savior and I love him, okay, which is great and we all celebrate that. We worship him for the fact that he saved us by his sacrificial death, but it's also a matter of what is your will, God? I mean, this is this is the basis of, of Christianity. After salvation, the whole next question is, what is your will, God? What do you, what do you want? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to act? How do you want me to function? What's the moral standard? What is the code of conduct? How do I deal with my relationships? How do I understand the world and my place in it, right? Which means if Jesus is Lord, then he has given us a standard, what we call an ethic or a absolute truth of how to live. And we're not saved by doing it. We're saved because he's the Savior. But as his followers, we are commanded and we are responsible to then build our house. I love this graphic. Build our house on the rock of his teaching. Okay? So in the last um, several months, we started in October, we've been walking through discipleship. Um, and, and so what does it mean to be a disciple? How do we practically apply the, the teachings of the Bible and especially of the teachings of Christ to our life? Uh, not that they 
save us. We, can't, we can never, and we, we cannot overemphasize this, we can never by our work save ourselves. We know that. He saves us. But we have been given the truth of God's word to apply to our life so that we can become mature and more like him. Right? So um, in the next 10 weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to dig into the teachings of Christ, this specific um, ethic. Okay? And an ethic is, it's an absolute truth, and it's true no matter who abides by it, agrees with it, applies it, or not. Whether that's a tiny minority or it's the majority, it doesn't matter because it's an absolute truth. And so the first um, powerful message of Jesus's ethic that he transfers to the church. It's a, and I hesitate to even use the word law because in our minds as Christians, law is bad and we're under grace, not under law. But the, the Bible tells us that we've been given Christ's law. And here's how you picture it, okay? Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai. He came down from the mountain. He had 10 commandments and he had all kinds of other laws too. But he had 10 commandments and this was the moment that Israel became kind of a nation under the law of God, a people that understood how to relate to God according to his standard. Okay? It, was a, it was the most powerful moment in all of history because it was a moment that was set apart as here's the difference between you and the world. You will uh, uh, have a relationship with God through this type of living. When Jesus came down or when he was on the mount uh, giving the, the Sermon on the Mount, it is that kind of a moment, okay? He is uh, delivering to the people the message of what it means to have a relationship with God according to, first of all, we're going to see the sacrifice, but secondly, according to a new and different and powerful code of conduct. How do Christians live? Okay, so we're going to dig into that. Uh, this week is, is uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, but in the Gospel of Matthew, there are five, what we call technically, five major discourses, okay, five big sermons that Jesus preached throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to just deal with those, one after the next. Um, this week is just uh, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, three chapters. So we're going to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, and then we'll be done. Just joking. No, I'm just gonna. I'm just going to read the conclusion to the sermon. Don't you wish you could just start with the conclusion? Like, what is your point? Can you get to the point? Okay, um, we're going to get to Jesus's point. My point's going to be long and drawn out. All right, let's stand as we read God's word. Matthew seven, starting in verse uh, twenty-four. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And Father, we thank you 
Thank you that you have given us uh, your word. You've given us the whole counsel of your word. Uh, You've shown us who you are. You've shown us your character. You've shown us um, your moral code. Transferred it to us. Beyond that, Lord, you gave us the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to discern, uh, to be able to apply, to be able to uh, be different. And Lord, we pray that we would be uh, truly changed because Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. That we keep our eyes on you, that we would keep our focus uh, clearly on who you are and how you're leading us and where you want us to go and what you want us to do. And Lord, we're so grateful that uh, we are set apart, that we are saved because of what you did for us on the cross, that the blood of Jesus, Lord, cleanses us, makes us new and different, transfuses us and and creates in us a new heart. Um, Lord, we pray that that new heart would beat for you, desire what you desire. And that's a process and it's not always easy. Lord, we pray for your spirit to increase, to uh, have more power, more control, that, that we would give you more of our lives, that you might be more glorified. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, there's a couple competing theories about the Sermon on the Mount. And if you haven't read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, I just encourage you to go back and do that. We're going to go through some major you know, topics throughout um, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but it's so uh, overwhelming, the... Uh, the standard that Jesus begins to outline throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he says at one point in Matthew 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now for for us who don't really know a lot about the Pharisees necessarily or Generally, we think of the word Pharisee as a negative thing. Anybody think of Pharisee as a negative thing? What if, if I call you a Pharisee, you take that as a compliment? Okay, so we know it's like a negative thing. But what is it? What is a Pharisee? There were 6,000 people, men in Israel in the time of Jesus, who were committed to living perfectly under the law. They had... Uh, put themselves into a group of of guys that were going to keep each other accountable. They were going to learn everything they needed to learn. They were going to apply every law as perfectly as humanly possible. Okay, So their righteousness, in terms of self-righteousness, in terms of of human uh, ability, was as as perfect as could be in, in human standards. And then Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. What can be done beyond righteousness, beyond perfection? What can you do? You say, okay, I've got to try twice as hard as the Pharisees? Or what, what does this even look like? And so the idea is that some people take some of these teachings and they say, well, the standard is so exceedingly impossibly high that it must not mean that you and I can really do anything about it. It it must mean, and there's other scripture that kind of 
alludes to this as well. So I get where they take that passage and they, they transpose it onto the Sermon on the Mount. I understand how that happened. Um, but some people interpreted it to mean that the Sermon on the Mount was just um, Jesus using hyperbole, okay, which is exaggeration for effect. He was using hyperbole to cause people to despair of their own ability to be righteous. That you can't possibly do it. So all you can do is fall back on and rely on the righteousness of Jesus and his sacrifice. And therefore, you basically, you can't even bother to try to do better. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound like maybe we've excused ourselves from any kind of responsibility to try to be better people? Anybody? Bueller, are you in the room, Bueller? So here's the deal. Jesus, in this conclusion, I think, removes that as a possibility, as an interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. He, he removes it because he says, everyone who, who hears these words of mine will be like a wise... So you're hearing the word of God. You're hearing the law, the ethic of Jesus being communicated. He says, if you hear these words, you got two choices. One is... To build your house, your house is your life. Your house is your life. This is how you live your life and how you live it in front of people, with people, uh, in work, in public, in your home, in your school, in your wherever. You either build it on the rock, which is what he just taught you, or you build it on the sand, which is to ignore his teaching. Or, another way to think of it is, instead of trying to do what he says, I'm going to come up with my own moral, which is easier to achieve. I'm just going to come up with my own rules that are more suitable to how I'm already living my life. How many people do that? If that is human nature, wherever the standard is, I want to, I want to meet that standard. So if I have to, I'll just lower the standard to wherever I'm already at. He says that's like building your house on sand. You're going to build a house. There's no doubt about it because your house is your life. How you build it, where you build it, on what foundation you build it, that's the choice that you have. He says if you build it on my teaching, my truth, then you're going to build something that's going to last, something that is stable, something that is strong, something that is dependable. You build it on your own foundation, then guess what? It's going to crash. Your life is your life. Your house is your life. It's going to happen. But how you build it, um, that's going to depend on you. So he says, build it on my ethic. Build it on my truth, my teaching, and you'll see something different. So years ago, um, I don't even know how long ago this was. If you, if you remember the beginning of it, then shout out a, a year, Okay. But let me, there was a campaign. It was WWJD. Anybody remember that? WWJD. When did that start? 88, 92. They're just throwing out numbers. I have no idea. I didn't go back and research this. But I remember it just kind of became this big deal, right? WWJD it was on bracelets and t-shirts and hats and the church was just like all busy about wwjd what does it mean 
What would Jesus do? It's very memorable. We, we got that. What would Jesus do? Um, it, there's good and bad to it, okay? I think it, it was, there's mainly positive, um, just to try to understand what would Jesus do in this context, in this situation, um, where it gets a little bit sketchy, I mean, not sketchy, but, you know, um, impossible, is that uh, Jesus was the most unique person to ever set foot on the earth, right? Okay, he, he, even Adam and Eve created perfect and, and no sin nature still were only human. Jesus is God and man. Okay, so um, what would Jesus do is a little unfair, right? He has complete authority over the spiritual realm and the physical realm, 100%. So he can call out a demon and say, get out of here, and, and it would have to obey him. It could not disobey Jesus, if he recognized, and he did, he understood and saw everything in the spiritual realm, sometimes I think that would be um, the worst gift to have, <laughs> to be able to actually see the spiritual realm, what's going on. I've, I've Sometimes I've asked God, God, can you show me what's going on in the spiritual realm? And I'm, I'm kind of glad that he's not given me that ability because I think you'd be freaked out. But he could see it. He knew if this person was deaf or this person had seizures, this person was paralyzed. He knew if it was a demon or if it was just a, a normal, you know, basic physical issue that they were dealing with. And he could call out the demon and he could send it out and they had to obey him. He had that kind of authority. He had the authority over this spiritual realm in terms of the good, in terms of angels. He could call on legions of angels and they would obey him. He was the commander of the hosts of heaven. He could say to the angels, come and help me, and they would, they would come and help him. And remember, only one angel was necessary to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And he could call on thousands at any moment, and they would obey him. He had the, he had the authority over the realm of heaven. He had complete, uh, 100% constant contact with his father at every moment. He knew exactly what his father wanted. He knew what he was supposed to say, what his father would tell him to say. The, the, the book of John tells us very clearly, says that Jesus only did, only said exactly what his father in heaven told him to do or showed him and told him to say. Constantly, 100% fellowship with his father all the time. Okay? So that kind of understanding, that kind of leading, that kind of connection and fellowship that he had with his father, unbroken. That's a powerful thing. I mean, you and I have fellowship with God through Jesus, but I would guess that 100% of the church does not have 100% of, of the fellowship and connection with the father that Jesus did, right? As much as we have a relationship with God, we don't have that. Not yet. And yet we do in another way, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who calls us, convicts us, gives us understanding, gives us leading, gives us direction, truth, conviction, power to live the Christian life. We do have that, but we don't have it like he did. It's different. He had that, and he had the authority over the natural realm, too. He could, if you wanted to make a beeline from Capernaum to Wherever, he just crossed the Sea of Galilee, walk on water. It was no big deal. The storm bothering the disciples, hey, storm, get out of here, right? Storm would calm down. Anybody ever done that before? I mean, I've prayed for, you know, no snow. <laughs> I love it. People, 
No, I won't go there. Okay, so he has complete authority over the natural realm. He could take bread. He could multiply it. He could take water and turn it into another substance, into wine. He, he, he could take a person who's blind and make them see, a person who's deaf and make them hear. He could take a dead person who's rotting in the grave and tell them to live and they would live. His authority over the spiritual realm and the natural realm were absolute. What would Jesus do? And you say, okay, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, I don't know. Jesus might just tell that dead person to get up. I mean, there's limits, right, to that. But here's where we have, I think, a good connection with what would Jesus do. He gave us his moral standard for how to live your life. I think that was more so what WWJD was supposed to kind of call us out into. What would Jesus do? What was his teaching? What was his standard for how to live your life, right? How do you build your life on his ethics? So how many of you think that you know the Sermon on the Mount? Like, I know what's in there. Nobody. Wow. Okay. Here's what I'm going to, I figured that. Okay, but here's the deal. You do know what's in here because there are about 20 sections in the Sermon on the Mount and every single section has a very memorable tagline, something that's like, oh, I, I've heard that before. I know that. I've, I'm very familiar with that. Uh, let me just we'll walk through some of these. Okay, there's like I have 17 written down. Um, we'll try to get through um, all of them. Okay, so. <laughs> Blessed are the meek, for they will what? Inherit the earth. You knew that. This is the, the first um, block, the first teaching is the Beatitudes. You've heard of the Beatitudes. Is blessed are. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. All of them have this um, ethic of humility. Okay, the, the, the point that God is making, that Jesus is making in giving us the Beatitudes, is that God blesses God strengthens, God is with, God is happy with, God is um, delighted in those who exalt him and others. And God opposes those who, do, who exalt themselves. It's the difference of the world versus Christianity. Christianity, according to Jesus' teaching and his ethics, says that when you, when you exalt others, God is delighted in that. When you exalt yourself, God is not so pleased. The world says, exalt yourself, promote yourself, build yourself up. Um, this is like the idea of like, you got to pad your, your resume, right? Make everything that you've done look 10 times better than what it actually was. So people will think that you're great. Uh, and, the, and what the ethic of humility is, is that I don't have to deal with my own value because I know my value. God loves me, he made me, he died for me, and so I'm trying to get other people to understand their value. I'm trying to help other people to see how God loves them. That's the ethic of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. See, you know this stuff. This is these every single section of the Sermon on the Mount has something like this that you're just like, you know, wow. Mind-blowing stuff. Salt of the earth, light of the world is the ethic of influence. Um, aren't you glad 
you do not have to stand here and deliver a sermon. <laughs> Some of you would like to get up here and deliver a sermon. That, that's okay. But here's the deal. You're, you are delivering messages, sermons, influence, <laughs> proclaiming something uh, all the time. This is the, the ethic of influence. Everywhere that you are, everywhere that you go, in your home, in your workplace, among strangers, you are declaring something. And what Jesus says is that as you apply the salvation of Christ and then the ethic of Christ, you are bringing light into a dark place. No matter where you go, you don't have to necessarily try to go places because wherever you go, you're bringing the light of Christ. It's an awesome thing. So what we have is hundreds of people as they believe and respond to the gospel, then what happens is they build their life on that piece by piece. They take that wherever they go, and then they can help other people to see the truth and the ethic of God because they're living it out. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in their heart. The ethic of motive. They were saying, as long as you don't commit the act. Here's one that I think the church is slow to pick up on. I think this is one where we were like, um, I don't know, God, that's kind of hard. And it's not lust, necessarily just lust. It can be anger. It can be envy. It can be all kinds of things. But where does sin originate? In the heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to check your heart. You've got to deal with your heart. It's not just the actions that matter. It's the motive that comes from you know, or that originates. It's where you're spending your time, your, your energy, your attention, how you're focusing your, your, your desires. Just because you don't do something doesn't mean that you haven't wanted to do something. You need to deal with that part of it first. Ethic of motive. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is the ethic. This is kind of weird, but um, in Jesus' day, what was happening, um, and it's weird because we're right back to that point now. They would lie, cheat, and steal so much that the only way that you could guarantee that somebody would keep their word is if they made an oath. In our day, what do we call that? contract. I got to sign this contract. We got to get all the legal documents in place because guess what? If there's any loophole, if there's any way I can get out of this and I'm not going to, I'm not going to fulfill what I said, you know, the, the days where you could shake somebody's hand and their word was good are kind of almost over, aren't they? Now we'll even make contracts and still break them. And go back on them and try to get out of what we owe or what we think we're supposed to do. Um, but the ethic is honesty, integrity. You, you say you're going to do something, you do it. And we should just be able to depend on this idea that I'm a man or a woman of my word. Christians ought to be honest people. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek right? We don't like this one either too much, but uh, it's the ethic of non-retaliation. It basically, it's not dealing with justice as much as it's dealing with vengeance. I must get even with that 
person. And we are influenced by an ethic of forgiveness. That if you wrong me, I am compelled because I wronged God and he forgave me, I will forgive you. That's a different ethic than what the world has. In the law, it was eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? And the idea was simply that you don't go beyond um, what is what is necessary for justice. You know, if somebody steals, you don't kill them, right? And so that was the idea. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth is just like, let your justice be equal to the crime. Uh, but they were taking it so literally that if you strike me, then I will strike you. It, however you harm me, I'll harm you at equal uh, amount. I, I must get even with you. Whatever you do to me, I'm going to do to you exactly the same. Try not to go beyond that, but I'm going to do exactly to you what you've done to me. And Jesus says, leave vengeance to the Lord and free people from your anger and your need to be malicious, violent, aggressive, retaliatory, whatever. Uh, you've heard love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. Um, I think this is the ethic of non-favoritism more than, than enemies. The idea is this. Every single human being has the thumbprint of God on them and he cares for each one of them and he died for each one of them and he wants each one of them to be saved. So therefore, why am I calling a human being my enemy? Even if they are acting like an enemy towards me, I still care for them because God wants them saved. So he says, instead of hating your enemies, he says, pray for those who do what? Persecute you. So the word or the idea of somebody being my enemy is removed from my vocabulary and it's replaced with pray for those people um, because they need to have a heart change, even if they're trying to harm you. And there will be people that will try to harm you. And your response is, instead of hating them, to love them enough to pray for them that they would change. It's a different ethic. Um, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is the ethic of doing something good for the sake of the good thing and not for your own glory. Because what was happening is that I'm going to do this good thing and I want everybody to know it. And God says, you don't need to worry about credit in heaven because I've already given you a full bank account in Jesus Christ. So I do good things for the sake of doing good things. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, the ethic of time, talent, and treasure. Your heart follows where you put your time, your energy, your money, your abilities. Your heart follows that. It's You would think it'd be the other way around, that if I really love something, I really value something, then I'm going to put my time... Here's what we find. Um, how many of you love your families? If you love your family, why don't you spend more time, talent, and energy on your family? You think about that. Your your talent, time, and money does not necessarily follow what you, your heart you know says. I, I love my family. 
you have to put your time, your talent, your money towards supporting, strengthening, encouraging, blessing, building up your family, and your heart begins to follow that. It's a strange uh, way of, of thinking about things. Your heart will follow where you spend your time, talent, and your treasure. No one can serve two masters. Uh, the ethic of contentment, seeking the kingdom first. So um, if you serve money, you can't really serve God. Here's, here's our problem. As American people in the 21st century, we are so wealthy. So wealthy. Um, we don't feel wealthy. I don't think a lot of us feel like, well, I'm just so rich. Um, because we're discontent. And a lot of us are discontent because... Unfortunately, we're serving our money rather than our God. Let that sink in for a minute. I want more. I want better. I want newer. I want different. And how much energy are we pouring into trying to achieve something over here? And how little energy are we putting into the kingdom? I mean, that convicts my heart. Can't serve two masters. Um, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be what? Anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day, its own trouble. Uh, the ethic of trusting God. I mean, it's not even so much about how you feel, right? Like I'm, I'm just going to, I mean, how many of you, I mean, I wish I could just say, God, I'm just not going to be anxious about that. I'm done. I'm done being worried. Um, you can kind of try to choose that. I would tell you that you can try to choose a better attitude, uh, but your feelings will just kind of catch up to, to that eventually, maybe. But the, the reality is um, it's an issue of just trusting God. Am I going to trust God with tomorrow? Am I going to trust God with the future, with the next week, with the next month, with my eternity, or am I going to try to control it? It's the ethic of just trusting God. Um, do not judge. Why do you seek to remove the speck from your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye, right? Ethic of self-reflection. Why am I trying to change you when I still need to be changed? It's also the ethic of non-hypocrisy. I'm, I'm trying to make you better, but I'm, I'm nowhere near where I need to be. Um, so, it's not that you don't ever try to help somebody else, because what it does say is that once you remove the log from your eye, then you'll be able to see to help the person, your brother, with a speck in their eye. So you do help other people, but you deal with yourself first. The ethic of self-reflection. Um, ask and it will be. Seek and you will. Knock and the door will be. So it's again, it's reiterating but it's also a matter of prayer. It's not just trusting God, but also how do you go to God with your concerns? I believe God's promises. I believe his word. I believe his love. I believe his goodness. And so I'm going to constantly go to him for my needs. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Um, 
I think that one's very interesting because it's the ethic of God's will, not the majority, right? I mean, you try to look around at the world and get your, your handle on what's right and wrong based on what the world is doing, where, where are you going to end up? I mean, confused at least, probably in a very bad way at the worst. Um, our world does not have a grasp of, of right and wrong anymore. Our culture doesn't. Uh, there's, there's no way to look at what people are doing around you and say, that's the standard. This is why peer pressure is so damaging. We put our kids, I don't want to be too hard on this, but the reality is this. We put our kids into these environments with other kids, and they look at each other for acceptance, for love, for uh, what's cool, what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable, how you live, you know, all these different things. And they're getting so many mixed messages here's the thing that we have to understand is that as parents, as leaders, as teachers, um, whatever influence grandparents you have, you know, in your kids' lives, grandkids' lives, we need to help them to establish their value in relationship with God. And we need to help them to understand what's right and wrong according to the word of God. And we cannot think I mean, we have to be very careful that we don't start to drink the Kool-Aid and think that my kid won't be influenced by all those other kids. You're going to have to talk to your kids about what they're learning, what they're perceiving, what they're receiving from the, the culture around them, from social media, from all other types of media, from their friends, from their peers, from even people they don't like. I mean, what are they hearing? And you're going to have to have some discussions with them. You're going to have to sit down and talk to them about those values. And you can't just assume that they're picking it up just because they live in your home. They're not getting it through osmosis. There's going to have to be discussions. That's an issue of we have to deal with the, the wide road to destruction that the culture has always been going down, but it's just more obvious now. The narrow path is Jesus Christ, and it's knowing him, his truth, his word, his will, and we have to clearly communicate that. Amen? Here's one more, last one. Many will say, Lord, Lord, but I'll say, away from me, why I never knew you. This is the ethic of relationship over religion. Um, it's the issue that Jesus is saying, if all you have is a religion, it won't change your heart. What you have to have, what you need to have is a relationship with the father, that fellowship that he had, he was actually able and willing to then transfer that to you and me so that what's going on is that the Holy Spirit, this is what's so amazing, okay? I just, I get blown away by this anytime I talk about it, anytime I think about it. The Holy Spirit living in you gives you understanding and insight into God's Word, okay? And what happens is, as you hear God's Word, then the Holy Spirit in you takes that truth and it sinks it down into your heart. And then, as you go out into the world and into your life, the Holy Spirit will convict you about where you're not 
doing what God has showed you or told you in his word, what you should do. That, that feels like guilt, but the intention there is to draw you back into fellowship with God because what you do is you say, God, I'm sorry, I'm not meeting your ethic, your truth. I'm not living it. God, I'm sorry for that. And what God does is says, that's, I forgive you. I love you. I, I want you to do better. And so I'm going to forgive you and bring you back into fellowship. And as you do that, you begin to grow. And you begin to see that I can constantly come back to the Lord. I can constantly be uh, informed, understand, and apply these things into my life more and more in the Holy Spirit. This is why the Holy Spirit is a spirit of grace. This is why the law is mediated by grace. Is because as you continue to work out this process in your life, then you begin to grow into a character that actually is beginning to live out the ethics that you see in God's Word. The Holy Spirit enables you to do that. The power of the Holy Spirit is growing and increasing and increasing His effort and His influence in your life. And then from your life, your influence and effort is beginning to affect other people around you. This is why the the ethic of influence is so important is because as you build your life on this ethic, on his teaching, and then the power of the Spirit is infusing might and power into that. Then as you go into the world, people are beginning to see that not only do I believe Jesus is this unique person, but I have, my life is different. It's not just because he's my Savior I get to go to heaven, but it's also because he's enabling me to apply a different code of conduct into how I relate to every single issue, circumstance, and person in my life. And they're like, that's different. That's, that's helping me to see my life because what you are is not just a house, but you're a lighthouse. And you're shining God's truth out into the world. So you're not just building your house. You're building a house that has wonderful curb appeal. So he says, uh, Paul says, we're ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. God is making his appeal through us. You build your house on the rock, and you get to help other people build their house on the rock. Amen? Father, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all of our worship because you are our Savior. And Lord, we pray that we would not only call you Savior, but that we would grow and also call you Lord. Thank you for giving us your truth. Thank you for helping us to understand it. Thank you for giving us the power to apply it. Thank you for changing us through it. You handed us a gift, wisdom, insight, understanding, marching orders, how to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received. You didn't leave us as orphans. You didn't leave us in the dark. You gave us your truth, and we thank you for it. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would do all these things, as you said, for your glory, for our sake, for our world's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning. Um, Wherever the Holy Spirit has shown you a gap in your life, like I said, immediately you can have fellowship with God. You can be forgiven. You can get back on track. It's not 
necessarily this long, drawn-out thing. It's like right now. And if God's showing you that, and He says, just lay that thing down. Wherever you've been building on the sand, replace it with the rock. Amen? If He calls you, you want, you want to come and, and make that commitment, you want to declare it, we'd love to pray with you about that. Let's stand and sing.